G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, this morning we take our last look at the book of Acts, for now at least. Um, Acts 25, 26 for today. Now, when Luke originally wrote these chapters, um, I suggest you keep them open in front of you if they're on your lap. They will come up on the screen. But when Luke, the author, originally wrote these chapters uh, that we've been reading about over the last weeks, and these two in particular for today, what did he intend for us to get out of it? What did Luke aim for his readers, for us down the ages, to get out of Acts 25, 26? I think it's got to at least include this, doesn't it? It's got such a focus on Paul's conversion, Paul's coming to Christ. I think it's got to at least include this, that we see Paul's encounter with Christ, Paul's reaction to Jesus there on the Damascus Road, and that we measure up our encounter, our own, my own, your own encounter with Christ, your reaction to Jesus and measure it up against Paul's as a point of comparison, don't you think? Have a listen to uh, one writer sum up Paul's reaction to Jesus as he met him um, there. From the time of Paul's conversion and calling on the road to Damascus, the gospel, the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ became the determinative focus of Paul's whole life. His encounter with the risen Christ led to a paradigm shift in Paul's thinking. Paul knew himself to be entrusted with God's mystery, the revelation that now Jews and Gentiles, that is non-Jews alike, would be gathered together into one body, the church. So brothers, uh, brothers and sisters, I put it to you today, I reckon the question for us is very similar Have you and I had such an encounter with Jesus that our lives bear resemblance to Paul's, resemble his paradigm shift? As his world was turned upside down by an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, after his encounter with Christ that saw him possessed of a new purpose and direction and driving force, does ours bear that shape? I think that's part of it for us. His life was turned upside down with a new purpose, a purpose that would even see him, well, in our passage today, boldly banging on about Jesus before a king, Agrippa, and a governor, Festus, and their entourage, when I think we're going to see, perhaps it would have been far better, far safer at least, for him to have kept his mouth shut. But before we pray and get into it, May I just illustrate the kind of shift that I'm talking about uh, with a little story. I'd like you to meet a lady named Juliet Funt. Juliet Funt. Um, She's a woman, she's an American woman who makes her living these days um, speaking. Who does she speak to? It's her job to persuade busy executives, frantic professionals, that they need to actually carve out time in their lives to pause in the midst of their lives, to find space 
in the midst of their busy schedules. That's her job. Convince them practically, actually, stop rushing. Don't be swallowed up by your screens or distractions uh, or whatever, or the frenzied pace of life that you're leading, and actually change your behaviour. Don't let those things crowd out what really matters in life. That's Juliet Funt. That's her job. Now, that sounds noble and it sounds great for those of us uh, leading what we feel like a, a busy lives. We all nod, don't we? We go, yes, that's very important. You should carve out time and space. You should find pause in life, all of those things. We nod along and then we get out into the rest of our lives and get caught up in it all again. But have a listen to her describe her little Damascus Road moment, her paradigm shift. Have a listen to her describe the moment that she moved from just nodding and agreeing and saying, yes, pause is important, to actually changing her behaviour forever and, in fact, making it her life's work to now help other people change behaviour. Juliet Funt, here she goes. She says, it was in St Louis and I was speaking at a sales meeting and this woman came up to me and she said, I want to tell you a story. Okay. Juliet Funt with a woman who's come up to her and here's what that woman said. That woman said, when I was a little girl, my daddy came to me and said, let's make a picnic. Let's make a picnic and let's go and get mama and let's go for a good old-fashioned joyride in the country. And they made, right, father and daughter, made ham and cheese sandwiches and pink lemonade and they got the little animal crackers with white on one side and pink on the other and they took the basket to Mama and they said, Mama, come with us. And she said, well, I'm too busy, but you guys go and have a great time. And they did. They had a wonderful time. They drove until the sun went down and they were laughing and singing and he, the dad, he died two days later. And this woman, now grown up of course, a woman speaking with Juliet Funt, this woman uh, told me, says Funt, this woman told me that her mother talked about that for the rest of her life, that she didn't take the ride. And, says Juliet Funt, and I never told that story to anybody for a very long time. And then there was this one day when I was sitting at my own kitchen table and I was working away on my laptop and banging away at the laptop and my husband was in the backyard with our boys who were then two years old and four years old and the babies were both naked, each had their own hose and they were washing the car and he, the husband, he sends me a text from the backyard into the kitchen and says, it's really cute out here, do you have a second? And I replied straight back, sorry, busy. And then that story came back and it picked me up and I was so nervous I knocked the chair over because I was just rushing out there to make sure that I didn't miss it. And I think, says Fund, I think that there is a, not a mother or father in the world who hasn't said, I'm too busy for you. And there isn't a mother or father in the world who hasn't pretended to watch someone build Legos and really been thinking about a spreadsheet. But, she says, but if we can remind each other one moment at a time to build in the habit of pause, it makes it so much more possible for us to say yes when that ride comes to our door. 
And I do believe that no one will ever regret not working a little harder, but I do believe that we'll regret missing that. Paradigm shift. Paradigm shift that actually changes lives, changes behaviour. Can we please weigh for ourselves today the impact of my own, of your own, encounter with Jesus in your life? You know, holding up Paul as our example, our parrot, our model, and ask this question, have our lives taken the appropriate shape, shifted as they ought to have, changed to reflect the reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him, that hope that we have in him for us, that hope that we have in him for the world around us. Can we pray as we come to Acts 25 and 26? Father God in heaven, we... We know that phrase, that familiarity breeds contempt, and we confess before you today that it's true of us. Even deep truths, profoundly important realities, whether we're talking about, you know, children or family or our life's work, or even the biggest realities of who you are and what you've done in the gospel. We confess that once a thing has become familiar to us, our appreciation of it dulls and is blunted and rusts over a bit. And we want to confess that openly before you, God, and we ask this morning for both your forgiveness and your help. Let us please no longer carry on in the spiritual equivalent of sorry, busy. Give us that honest self-appraisal, please, in the power of your spirit this morning and awaken us to how we, even in the little things, can reflect truly and rightly the big things, the biggest thing, the risen Lord Jesus himself in our little lives, even in the details. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. So on my read of it this morning, Acts 25 and 26, an encounter with Jesus does three things, three things. It ushers us towards an authentic openness, that's number one. Oh, you've got them there in front of you. Ushers us towards an authentic openness. I think secondly, an encounter with the risen Jesus inspires us to be eager evangelists, and I mean that in the best sense of the word evangelists. And thirdly, it does remind us to pursue personal connection with the people around us. So, ushers us towards authentic openness, inspires us to be eager evangelists, and reminds us to pursue personal connections. But the drama starts here, Acts 25, verse 23. Please read with me. The next day, Agrippa, that's King Agrippa, and Bernice, that's his sister, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, that's the governor, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? He's talking about... Paul, as in the Apostle Paul, as in who's a prisoner. Do you remember that? If you haven't been following along in the story in these weeks, Paul is imprisoned at the present time and we're going to learn about why. Uh, So Paul, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I've brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, 
so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Now, let me ask you this, just as we slide ourselves back into the drama of these chapters, does Festus intend a fair trial of Paul? Here. Now, I know it's not a trial trial, there aren't sort of the witnesses and evidence in quite the normal way, but does Festus intend a fair trial? Is the point of this exercise to establish, well, is Paul guilty or innocent, would you say? Friends, I don't think it is, and this is where the story really begins to grab us, I think, because put it this way, would Festus be happy to send this prisoner, Paul, off to Rome to stand before the emperor himself without a single credible charge against him. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that. He knows, Festus knows, oh, I have to send him to Rome. He's a Roman citizen. Paul, a Roman citizen, has appealed to Caesar, so I'm compelled, I'm obliged. I have to send Paul out to Rome. I've got no real choice about that. The only problem is I haven't got any dirt on the man. Do you see what this trial is about, really? For Festus to avoid the embarrassment before Caesar himself, he'd better come up with an actual case. Festus has an, a vested interest in finding fault with Paul. Does it feel a bit more precarious now? Agrippa, I've got to have something to write. Help me to get some dirt on this guy, would you please? Because the mud just isn't sticking. I need some charges. I need some substance to the claims. I need something to justify the fact that already he's been two years behind bars. And if I'm honest, Festus, although I'm not going to, uh, sorry, Agrippa, although I'm not going to put it in these terms, I need something to cover up the fact that the only reason Paul is really still in prison is because it would have been politically inconvenient for me to set him free. Do you remember the last few weeks as we've seen? Pretty precarious, right? And so Paul begins, I want to say, guardedly, or more to the point, positively, or even more glowingly. Have a listen to how Paul begins his defence. Chapter 26, verse 1, so Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews know, uh, all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they eagerly, sorry, earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? All right, pretty glowing start, okay? Quite a glowing beginning. You cannot overstate, Agrippa, what a straight-laced Jew I was. Ask them yourself. You've seen that my type before. That's exactly the type that I was, Agrippa. I behaved how Jews behave, as in good ones. I believed what good Jews believe. 
namely that God is God and that means he can raise the dead. I hoped for what good Jews hoped for. The only problem is the first time God actually came through on that hope, I couldn't see it. And that's where he goes next. Now, folks, please, I want us to see the genius of what Paul does here. Because remember, deeply precarious situation for Paul. If he gives them any dirt, then they've got him by the throat. Do you realise? So why on earth, why on earth does he do this? Paul gives them the most damning, the most condemning, the most shameful dirt, every skeleton from his closet. He opens the door and tumbles them all out. That's what Paul does. He dredges up his deepest regrets. If there were pages from Paul's story that he could erase, these would be them. Have a look from verse 9 of chapter 26 as he continues. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which is, of course, another way of saying, I understand why they're opposing me. Verse 10, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. I confess before you today, Agrippa, that I persecuted an innocent man. You want dirt on me, Agrippa? I confess before you today, I persecuted an innocent man. I hounded his followers. I bullied them. I played a part in the deaths of more than one of them. I became obsessed, that's the word, obsessed with their demise. It was not beneath me to manipulate them, to hunt them. Now, can we please notice two things here? Firstly, An encounter with Jesus has ushered Paul to a place, can we see this, when he has the most to fear, but he still wants to lay out his deepest regrets and shames. He will not hide behind a facade. Do you see how this encounter with Jesus has ushered in this openness for Paul? Paul can talk about his darkest days and his deepest shames. Now, I think that's partly because Paul knows that Christ has forgiven him those shames and so he can talk about them. He really does have the freedom that some of us crave from our past sins here. Paul can talk about them openly before a wonderful entourage of people knowing that, well, Christ has forgiven me so I can come clean. It reminds me of what one pastor found in his church, and and I think it's such a beautiful picture of a church community, Uh, Matt Chandler says, the gospel ushered in authenticity. 
that openness about where we all are and what we were struggling with and our deep need for Jesus made the church a safe place for people to come. An encounter with Jesus, you know, forgiveness, a recognition that my sin was against him. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? And the embrace that Jesus then has for sinners, even like Paul, as we're about to see. There's the paradigm shift to openness for Paul. But I think there's something else important here and it plugs into our second point. Because isn't there an aspect here where Paul's encounter with Jesus inspires an eager evangelist in Paul. Um, What do I mean by that? Put it this way. So Paul has has ripped off the closet door. The skeletons have come tumbling out um, on his former life. But let me ask you this. What would Agrippa have to concede in order to find Paul guilty of all of that wrongdoing? What would Agrippa have to believe in order to find fault that Paul has done the wrong thing, that Paul is guilty, that, aha, we have some dirt finally on you, Paul? What would Agrippa have to concede? Uh, Take another look from verse 14. So Paul, halfway through the story of his encountering Jesus, we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God, uh, Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul speaking to Agrippa again. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Agrippa, do you hear Paul's case? Agrippa, if Christ has risen, if he's alive like a living person, if he lives today, if Jesus is a real person... Alive today, Agrippa, who stood over me on the road to Damascus, who challenged me personally, if Christ is alive today and if you can see that and believe that, then I was in the wrong. You've got all the dirt that you need. Then I was guilty, immoral, deserving of death. All of that, the persecution of the innocents, because it proves that they were innocent, they were following a living man. The unjust hounding the condoning of undeserved deaths, 
the whole lot. Lock me up, throw away the key, send me to Caesar and we know how that's going to go if you'll concede that Jesus lives. Do you see the bind that Paul has put Agrippa in? You have all the evidence you need from my own lips. You won't need any witnesses. I want to say, Paul's pretty ingenious at that point. Uh, Festus reckons he's barking mad. Uh, Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Brothers and sisters, an encounter with Jesus makes for eager evangelists, is what we see in Paul. Now, may I share with us just um, one little statistic? Remember how we did a a church survey uh, a few months back? Actually, at the end of this month, uh, we're going to spend our quarterly congregational meeting looking over that together, and there's so much stuff in there. actually really looking forward to sharing that with you and talking that through with you and gaining some more insights um, with you. But I just want to share you one statistic. And remember, this is uh, from a a survey that we fulfil about ourselves. So this isn't a comment from the outside or a comment from the leaders. No, no, nearly all of us here filled in the survey. This is how we see ourselves. So from the survey, here it is, is on the screen, there it is, at the the bottom of the slide, that 17% of us, just 17%, feel at ease talking about our faith with others and look for opportunities to do so. 17% of us feel at ease talking about our faith with others and look for opportunities to do so. And I want to say, gosh, I think think that is a helpful statistic, a helpful bit of self-reporting. Um, on how we're feeling, how we're going. It's helpful for me as your pastor. It's very helpful for us as your session. Uh, We've talked about that a bit already. I think we're going to talk about it um, some more. It gives us, you see, a barometer on how we together feel that we're going, how equipped we feel. I think it gives us a barometer on how we as a church community feel about the, perceive the hostility, perhaps, Uh, of the culture around about us as we desire to be eager evangelists. But may I note just a a little strike a note of reassurance and of comfort from here in uh, the story of Acts. Because do we see in Paul's case, do we see what fueled his eagerness as an evangelist? Here at least... Because I put it to you, it came not so much from him having all the knockdown arguments. It came not so much from him having snazzy answers or fancy theology or um, even the apparent interest of his audience. Is it fair to say we struggle with each of those things at different times? But I don't think that's what drove him to be an eager evangelist in this instance. I think we're seeing here a kind of evangelism that depends on just one thing, just one thing. The conviction that my encounter with Jesus is the single most defining, single most liberating, single most significant thing that I know and can tell you about my life. 
Jesus has changed my life. Yes, in the sense that I'm now free to speak so openly about my failings as a person in view of his forgiveness. You know, my failures don't define me anymore as a person. My history as someone who persecuted the church of Jesus doesn't define me. If Jesus has forgiven me for it and says that it doesn't define me anymore, then then your opinion of me doesn't define me. But it's more than that, isn't it, for Paul? It's more than that. It's the conviction that in my encounter with Jesus, I've realised that he isn't just a generous, forgiving saviour for me. He's a generous, forgiving saviour for anyone, and that means for you, even you, Agrippa. Does that... Verse 22, I stand here and testify to small and great alike... I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In other words, to you, Agrippa. That's where my eagerness comes from. Because wherever I go and whoever I meet, right there and right them, I'll find people that Jesus wants to meet in the gospel. And I wonder, Agrippa, if you're one of them. Is that Paul's conviction? Okay, last point for us. Last point, personal connection, personal connection. An encounter with the risen Lord Jesus fuels within us a desire to pursue personal connection with actual people. Verse 27 of chapter 26, and we're nearly done. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God, I ask God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Folks, the very simple point that I want to make here isn't just that Paul strives so hard to personally connect with Agrippa. In a sense, he has to do that. Agrippa is the highest ranking official in the room. He's the king and he's the one asking Paul questions. Paul has to personally answer him, has to personally um, connect with him. No, no, it's the way in which he um, balloons that out to everyone in his company. Even though he is addressing a king, Paul will speak to the rest of the people in the room. There in verse 29, Paul replied, short time, O long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. I want you all to become a Christian, Paul is saying. If you are able to hear my voice today, don't think I'm just talking to the king, all of you need to uh, wrestle with an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus for yourself. Let's conclude, brothers and sisters. An encounter with the risen Christ, what did we say? Led to a paradigm shift for Paul. I think that much is pretty plain. Now, do you remember Juliet Funt sitting at her kitchen table, banging away on her laptop? The text comes in from her husband in the yard. It's really cute out here. Do you have a second? She replies, sorry, busy. The difference, I I presume, for her wasn't the knowledge that her kids were adorable. She already knew that. The difference, I presume, wasn't the knowledge that two little nudie kids with the hose and washing the car and everything, that that would be a cute moment, that that would be a time worth pausing for. I don't think it was the knowledge so much. The difference for us, I presume, for most of us, isn't that we 
know Jesus or know that we've had an encounter with Jesus. What is it? It's that over time these things are dulled. It's the dulling over time, the blunting, the rust that creeps in and that erodes that sense that with which we began and of which we need to remind one another, brothers and sisters, that sense that Christ is risen. And so I will walk in openness, authentic openness, as an eager evangelist pursuing personal connection. Why? Because I'm convinced he's the one who's changed my world and I'm convinced he's the one who can change, the one who can change yours too. How about we pray together? Well, Father God in heaven, may our eyes every single day be refreshed by the risen Lord Jesus. May our hearts each day be released and know the freedom of forgiveness in the risen Lord Jesus, that his forgiveness can cover over even the worst and the most wicked. May our anxieties and our fears, may our uneasiness and even just our not quite knowing what to say sometimes, May all of that find in Christ our boast and our song and our joy. Father, we pray particularly for those near and dear to us, whether colleagues or cousins or children or classmates. Would you please grant to them a willingness, Father, to reconnect with Jesus, to re-evaluate to strip back the rust, to blow off the dust and give them, O oh God, an encounter with Jesus in the gospel that changes their life and their destiny and their direction forevermore. We ask it for Christ's sake, please. Amen.